Well, at this time, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. If you have a bulletin, you'll see that the passage listed is 1 Kings 18, um, 17 through 40, uh, but we will be having that in the background and using other scripture to answer a question that comes from that. I'd ask you to go with me in a prayer first before we seek the Lord and his word. Father, we thank you that we can say that we truly are on your side because of what Jesus has done for us. And so would you now help us to look to you and to tremble at your word, that it would be precious to us, that we would confess areas of our lives where your word exposes how we are not on your side, where we sin and fall short, and how we can rejoice that you use us despite that sin. We are truly your people, precious and beloved. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to be thinking about, to remember, the, the clash at Carmel, the conflict between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and eventually the Lord answering, and eventually, ultimately, the prophet's execution. And as we think about what does godly confrontation look like today, read from two segments of First Peter. The first is First Peter chapter 3, and we will be reading verses 13 through 17, and then we'll be jumping to First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through the end of the chapter. This is God's word. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Get to do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be for God's will, than for doing evil. Moving on to chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a meddler or a thief or an evildoer or as a murderer. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For if it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is God's word. 
The year was 723, or thereabouts. Two crowds gathered around a massive oak tree in what is now Germany. There was a group of local pagans who worshipped this tree as Thor's oak and thought that it had special powers. There was an English missionary. His name was Winifred, known better by the name Boniface, meaning doer of good. And he challenged the local pagans that they worshipped a god who was false. He was dead. And to prove it, he took up an axe and began to chop down that majestic and venerable tree. And I will read a little bit from a, a, a record of this later in that century, Willibald's Life of St. Boniface. This is what was written later in the 700s. Boniface the saint attempted in the place called Gazmir, while the servants of God stood by his side, to fell a certain oak of extraordinary size, which is called by an old name of the pagans, the Oak of Jupiter. And when, in the strength of his steadfast heart, he had cut the lower notch, there was present a great multitude of pagans, who in their souls were earnestly cursing the enemy of their gods. But when the foreside of the tree was notched only a little, suddenly the oak's vast bulk, driven by a blast from above, crashed to the ground, shivering its crown of branches as it fell. And as if by the gracious compensation of the Most High, it was also burst into four parts and four trunks of huge size, equal in length, were seen, unwrought by the brethren who stood by. At this sight, the pagans who before had cursed, now on the contrary believed and blessed the Lord and put away their former reviling. Then, moreover, the Most Holy Bishop, after taking counsel with the brethren, built from it the timber of the tree wooden oratory and dedicated it to the honor of St. Peter, the Apostle. Now, there may be a little bit of an embellishment there about the wind blowing and it, it splitting into four. Um, we don't know a lot about the history of Boniface, but what we do know is that he chopped down a tree and he used it to build a church. And, and from that and other efforts, pagan Livings, pagans living in what's now Germany converted to Christianity. You might even say without a Boniface, there wouldn't be a Martin Luther. There wouldn't be at least the Reformation as we know it. And here's the question I would like us to consider today. Did Boniface do what is right? And should we fell trees too? And we've been hearing from God's word about Elijah and the first two chapters build to this massive clash, this confrontation between really God and Baal, but through Elijah, his prophet, and the prophets of Baal. And I've been thinking about this. Okay, that's what Elijah did. So what does godly confrontation look like for us? Should there ever be anything like a Mount Carmel showdown today? Way back, several months ago, when we started Elijah, I said there's two errors you can make when you examine Elijah's life. Um, you can say Elijah is just like us, and you could see Christians from that era sponsoring violence and saying, well, here you get the crusades or the, the abortion bombings. Or um, No, actually, in this passage in Carmel, th this is a very different situation, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. So you can't say Elijah is always just like us, but it's also wrong to say Elijah is completely unlike us. The Apostle James holds up Elijah as a model for how to pray and as someone who is connected 
to Jesus, we too are like Elijah in ways. And what I said was that we follow in Elijah's footsteps when we live in such a way that we bear witness to God's kingdom. And that includes a call to repent. So here's the idea of the sermon today. When you cut down trees, count the cross and not clicks. Count the cross and not clicks. I think I should explain that. Make sure that you are honoring Jesus when you confront and not simply providing clickbait. Our society has a very sad and disturbing trend where we find an articulate person who's on our side and we put them against a far less articulate person on the other side with predictable results. And then we put it on YouTube and post titles like so-and-so owns Professor Jones, right? Congressman Smith gets destroyed. There's a place for confrontations, but it's a small place. And our society has made this clickbait, an echo chamber in which it's the paradigm for which we live and talk and discuss. And it's really much more about a self-righteous good feeling about trouncing someone that you disagree with than the glory of God or loving your neighbor. So we do have a place for confrontation, but not as it is modeled by our society today in general. So what does it look like? Well, I do want to start and be clear and say what it isn't. Um, Confrontation does not look like Elijah executing the prophets of Baal today. What Elijah was doing there is different. It's a different stage of redemptive history. He was carrying out holy war on the enemy prophets who led God's people astray. Like Phineas the priest, you might remember where he took a spear and he impaled a man and a woman who were part of the cause of idolatry leading the people of Israel astray. This is what Elijah is doing. The country of Israel was a sacred space. It was a holy people in a holy land devoted to a holy God. And God could not, he would not tolerate false prophets in the land forever. And so in this situation, Elijah was right to execute them. The biblical word is to devote them for destruction. They were unclean, profane people carrying out idolatrous war on God's people. And so they were to be set apart for destruction. That's a hard truth that shocks our modern thinking today. But it's really what it does. It shows us the seriousness of which God takes sin. And what Elijah did was proper then, but it's not proper for us now. Really, Elijah is acting as a type of Jesus, as this prophet. Um, Jesus will come back as prophet and king, and when he comes back finally... He will come back to judge the world. I'm not going to read these passages, but you can jot them down if you would like to. Isaiah 63, 1 through 6, and Revelation 19, 11 through 21, both depict Jesus as the righteous judge coming back to do war against all who oppose him. And at that point, if you would see the, read the passages in Revelation, we will be in his army And we will be singing, stand up, O God, but it will be Jesus who carries out the war and we will simply be witnessing. And in the meantime, we are not to help God's plan along with coercion, right? Rather, 
Jesus, Peter, Paul, they all command a ministry of nonviolence. And when we wage war, we do, but we wage it with love and service and suffering, as Jesus did. But that is not to downplay the fact that judgment is coming. And there is a part of us as servants of God who are to be prophetic, that we need to bear witness to that. And that means you will confront, you will come into friction with the people around us. So what does the godly confrontation look like? We'll look at a couple ways, but the main goal, as we look, go back to 1 Peter chapter 3, is that you are to honor the Lord. Right. Peter says, starting in verse 15, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, or you could also translate that, set apart Christ as Lord. Stop and think about that for a moment. That in the arena of clickbait, zingers and one-upsmanship, our goal is to make sure that Jesus is presented as Lord and he is honored. Implied here is that you are at least able to give some sort of answer for the hope that you have. doesn't mean you need to have a degree in apologetics. It doesn't mean you have to go toe-to-toe with Richard Dawkins. But you should, in simple language, be able to describe what God has done for you and the difference he's made in your life. Well, how do you do that when that leads to confrontation? Well, there's no way around it. As Christians, we do need to be able to confront disruptively. Kids, what does it mean to be disruptive? Right? It means to change what is normal, to throw things out of balance, to rock the boat. COVID-19 is disruptive. Not saying we should be disruptive in that way. It's not a happy thing. But it has changed life as we know it. And Christianity is a disruptive force. Humanly speaking, why was Jesus crucified? Well, because he challenged the political powers of the Jerusalem elite, the Sadducees and the priests, and he destroyed the self-righteous pretensions of the religious elites, the Pharisees. Think about his message and how disruptive it is. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, change your direction, because you are a sinner in danger of judgment. The kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom that you are building won't last. I offer you a better one, but you have to forsake yours. Jesus and his gospel is a beautiful message of hope. But if you've grown up in the church, you might, be able to, might lose sight of how disruptive it can be. If you've heard of Rosaria Butterfield, um, she's written several helpful books. She was a professor of um, gender and queer studies in uh, the University of Syracuse. She had tenure. And through the loving, persistent, and friendly witness over two years of a pastor and his wife in the area, she came to confess Jesus as Lord. But she talked about her conversion experience. And paraphrasing, she said, many people have beautiful stories talking about how they came to Jesus. Mine was a train wreck. And reading between the lines, I wouldn't have it any other way, but I lost everything. I lost my job. I lost my friends. I lost my partner. I lost my identity. It was disruptive. That's what Jesus and his gospel does. 
And that's what you see when Jesus sends out his apostles. It seems like, although they do their best to avoid it, everywhere Paul and his companions go, a riot breaks out. One of my favorite verses from Acts is Acts 17, um, verse 6. And, and there's a riot. The Jews were jealous. They're dragging people. And they're bringing them to the magistrates. And, and finally, they shout to the authorities, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Jesus' apostles literally turned the world upside down as they went throughout the world. Paul as he's reflecting on the good news and its reception, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, For the Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And the gospel was no better for Romans, who were very patriotic, and part of their patriotism was worshipping the emperor as deity. And so they would say, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. Well, the Christians would say, Jesus, curios, Jesus is Lord. And you see Jesus and Paul and the apostles as they're going out, discussing, preaching, reasoning, uh, teaching. They're disruptive. Sometimes the apostle Paul is even purposely a painful, a pain in the neck. Do you remember when he and Silas were beaten in Philippi? And afterwards, the after the jail is uh, there's the earthquake and, and they're released, but they're, they escape, but they don't go anywhere. They come back the next day after the jailer has been converted and the authorities say, you're, you're free to go. And, and Paul says, well, wait a second. We're Roman citizens. You beat us without trial. You don't just let us go. You come down and you take us out. I, I think Paul had a point there. He was probably doing it so that the authorities would be more cautious in the future when just summarily apprehending Christians. But he was disruptive. And then you have Jesus clearing the temple. Maybe once, maybe twice. Uh, John records it in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke at the end. What do you do with that? Jesus gathering up whips. A whip and and turning over tables and, and driving out the animals. Well, it's a bit tricky because perhaps Jesus cleared out the temple. He was acting like an Old Testament prophet still that was calling God's people Israel to account. It's not a good passage for us then to justify getting a bullwhip and cleaning out some den of sin today, right? Um, That would not be the proper uh, application. It is important to notice that as Jesus is clearing out the temple, the violence is not directed towards people, but the instruments of sin, the the money and and the tables and the animals that that were crowding out a place that was supposed to be an area of prayer for the Gentiles and women. But what you do see, I'm not sure if you can just say, well, this is Jesus acting as an Old Testament prophet. You see the Lord in human flesh being disruptive in a culturally appropriate way. And he may even have landed a few blows on the money changers as they scurried out. Let's go back to Boniface for a minute. He's chopping down this tree. We don't know much about the situation. It's, it's, it's hard. We can't judge. Only God can judge. Did that honor the Lord or not? But you have to give it to Boniface. He was disruptive. And if I could paint his actions in the best possible light, he knew that the Germanic tribes believed that their gods were somehow tied to the trees, that the tree had a certain power. And, and when he attacked the trees, he was attacking their gods. And in their thinking, a God who couldn't defend himself is no God at all. 
And if that was going through his mind, then I believe he was doing the disruptive thing that might have even been following Jesus' footsteps, cleaning the temple. I think it's important to say again that what Boniface did then in a very different culture would be completely inappropriate today. Laughably so. Right? The tree was centuries old. We'd all be a little up in arms about cutting down a beautiful tree. Um, no one worships trees, but that was their sanctuary, so it would be like you know, bulldozing a tabernacle or something, or, or, or a temple today. Um, so that, that wouldn't work in our society because the culture is different and we would understand it differently. Even if it was effective, it wouldn't bring honor to Jesus. So what does it look like then for you to be disruptive in your conflict? Well, the way that you see Jesus and his disciples the majority of the time, almost all the time, by your speech. God has put us in this world, in our relationships and friendships, where at times, in the right place, we are to challenge others and their idols in a way that they worship, that they worship instead of God. And I'll share with you three examples, and you may have heard some or all of these before. But there is a, someone who challenged a materialistic idol. You may have heard Paul Tripp tell the story. He tells it quite a bit. But when he was a young man, he worked as a groundskeeper for someone who was very wealthy. And he had all these beautiful cars. We'll call him Mr. Smith. And, and one day, after sh- showing these cars off, he, he drives up with a new one and stops and says, Paul, what do you think about it? And he looks at it and he says, I don't think it's doing it for you. He says, what do you mean? He says, well... Clearly, you're missing something in your life. And you've got all these cars already, and it hasn't helped. I don't think one more is going to do it. Right? The guy kind of went away like the rich young ruler. Sad and disheartened. And Bill Hybels, who uh, you could say many things about him, but he does love Jesus, and he made it a point to be with unbelievers so that he could share Jesus with them. He went to join a boating club and he befriended a man. I believe his name was Tom. Tom was a big guy. He was, he was a partier. He, he was loud. He was a guy that you'd like to be around, but he was definitely not having the Jesus thing. And, and he found out, you know, he and Bill found, okay, you're a Jesus guy. We'll be friends. We're just not going to talk about that. And Bill made it a point to be in his life. And one day Tom shows up with his arm in a sling, either a very bad sprain or he broke his arm. And Bill said, well, Tom, what happened? How are you doing? He said, well, you know, I was, I was out doing my thing. I was drinking and partying and I lost my balance. And this big guy fell, messed up my arm. Bill was thinking, well, of course I should say, you know, I'm sorry. I hope you feel better. And maybe, maybe a little, uh, just led by the spirit. He said, Tom, you know, you know, I'm a God person. I got a verse for you. Tom said, okay. He said, Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You reap what you sow. Hope you feel better, Tom. He walked off. Tom was a little disgruntled. But, you know, over time, that led to a conversation and eventually Tom came to accept Jesus through that disruptive comment. One more about a, um, a woman who was in New York City. There was a pastor, not Tim Keller, different pastor, uh, doing a Bible study with her. It was very clear she was a relativist. We just make up our own morality. Um, you know, it's what we think. We kind of have this enlightened 
um, self-ability now. And then something terrible, it wasn't the Rwandan genocide, something terrible happened in Africa. And the pastor asked her, you know, Madeline, was that evil? And she said, I'm not sure what to say about that. And he pressed her and she just kind of pushed it off. And every time he met her, he would say, how are you doing, Madeline? Was it evil? Just leave it at that. And eventually, she had to admit that, yes, it was. And that means there is a God who actually creates right and wrong. And she gave her life to him. Right? We, we need, at certain times, to be disruptive as, as talkers, as people who speak. And I, I, I read this in an article, and my sister, who is visiting, also mentioned this. You know, we are in the, right now going through great economic sacrifice to care for people who are weak and vulnerable. And also, and sometimes we're not even really even saving lives, we're extending lives. Some people who are vulnerable will live many more years, but there are many people who are dying from this virus who, if we're honest, would die shortly after anyway. Now, as Christians, we'd say, that's a wonderful thing to do, and that's, that's a worthy thing to be discussing about how, part of how do we manage um, life and livelihood. But perhaps when we're a little distant from this, we could also say, okay, we've risked almost everything to care for the weak and the vulnerable, including some who don't have much time left on this earth. That was a good thing. So why is it that we don't extend the same right to those who are unborn, who have their whole lives ahead of them? Can we try to wrestle with that and make sense of that? Right? We need to be disruptive at times. Now, you may say, I'm not a talker. I don't do confrontation. And you know what? That's okay. God has given us different gifts. You may count on your hand in your whole life how, how many times you're going to have these types of conversations. But here's where you should be disruptive. Here's where you must be disruptive. In your prayers. You pray that the Lord would disrupt the lives of your unsafe family and friends. You pray that God would shake the hearts of unrepentant believers and bring the nation back to him. Part of your prayer life should be to ask God to disrupt this world for his glory. That's something everyone can do. Not every day, but often when um, we have our family worship, I pray for uh, one of our neighbors' couples. They're dear to us. We love them. We're great friends. But I pray that God would bless them. And as I do that, I also pray that they would come to know and accept Jesus. We need in our prayers to think and, and believe that God is moving people and hearts in this world, and especially in a time where this virus has disrupted our lives. Would the Lord also break up hard hearts and bring them to him? So we must confront disruptively. And I do believe that as a church, we're weak on the prophetic voice side of of our calling. But of course, if this is all that you do, that would be a problem too. So clearly we need to confront not only disruptively, but with love. We need to be wise and loving in the way that we do it. If your goal is to simply inflict pain or win, then you are not honoring Jesus. Once again, Jesus shows us how to live. He has a wide range of interactions with people. There are plenty of times where Jesus owns the Pharisees. It would be a YouTube moment. 
But in his confrontations, he also acts in very loving ways. Right? Caring, he's caring and mysterious with the woman at the well. Piquing her curiosity. Challenging her sin. But showing a hope that she wants more. He's loving and insistent with the rich young ruler. He loves him, even as he shows him that the very thing that he's built his life on is worthless. There are times with Pharisees and lawyers, there is gentle instruction as well as hard rebuke, or instead of it. And there are plenty of times where he doesn't disrupt at all, where he is simply eating and drinking with tax collectors, and they know that he loves him. In fact, if your goal is to love your neighbor, you won't be disruptive most of the time. And if you are disruptive most of the time, you won't have any neighbors to be friends with, right? Elijah, Boniface, Jesus, and the temple, these are all high-tension points. And they come rarely. Most of your time will come as being with friends where there's just a time the Lord calls me to speak into the situation. Wisdom will dictate too. If you have a, a person like a Tom who's big and is aggressive and, you know, you can meet him head on and he might listen to that. You do that with someone else and they may never talk to you again. Wisdom dictates. Maybe there's a Madeline and she needs to hear it every day. Maybe you have a quiet, reserved friend where just once or twice, spaced out, very lovingly, you point out, you say you believe this and yet it doesn't support this. What do you do with that? And you leave it and you pray. At the core of your motivation is to honor Jesus. And how do you do that? Peter says, with gentleness and respect. Well, how can you bring up hard subjects today without wanting just to win? Or getting so frustrated with people when they don't get it? Finally, you confront humbly. Confront humbly. It can be tempted when you live in a country that has so quickly drifted from at least an outward embracing of biblical truth to secularism, to to lash out in frustration. But this is where Peter says, you are are to suffer. You are to be willing to be misunderstood. And to have that gentleness and, and respect. And the way to do that is to confront the false idols of those around you, but realize the only reason that you are different is because of the mercy that God has had for you on the cross. And that is why I say count the cross and not clicks. Right? You are looking in your disruptiveness to the grace that God has shown you and that is available to other people, regardless of what form it looks, regardless of whether it feels good or not for you. In fact, you're willing even perhaps sometimes to lose face because it will advance the cause of Jesus. You know, I don't think it is honoring the Lord to have YouTube videos with titles like Rabbi Zacharias Owns Atheist. I just don't think it is. Now, Rabbi didn't put those out there. Someone else, a well-meaning and probably a young Christian who just enjoys that type of thing, it takes a clip. And, and yes, Ravi and other apologists do give good answers that often do put young punk college kids in their place. Right? But the title is wrong. The attitude is wrong. That dumb person doesn't get it. Of course he doesn't. Of course he won't. The Spirit hasn't opened her eyes. The way that you approach someone humbly, even when they hold a belief or carry out an action that drives you crazy, is to remember the cross. I am no better than this person. I even now am still caught in my own idols. 
I need the same thing that they do. God's mercy and grace. And this can lead to countercultural ways of conversation. You may know of the apologist James White. He's done work across the board, whether it's Islam or um, dialoguing with Roman Catholics or um, all, all kinds of the, 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 the um, cults. Well, there was one time that he, I think he was invited to Utah. He might have been in Brigham Young. And he was having a debate. And uh, although there are exceptions, I do think it is fair to say that the Mormon faith is not the most rigorous in its apologetics. It's not built that way. There's, there's a lot of emotion. Uh, there is a lot of um, facts that are accepted that can't be supported by history. It's pretty easy to argue against the Mormon faith from an intellectual standpoint only. And there was a young Mormon debating him who really wasn't doing a good job, to be honest. Just wasn't presenting the side well. And the audience began to laugh. And James White held up his hand as if to stop them and said, let him speak. And he did. I think he both won the debate intellectually, but perhaps also won some hearts showing a humility I am not here. My goal is not just to win, but to show Jesus. This also means that we need to repent of our own sins as a church. In each area, each, in each age, the church is going to have blind spots. Right? Whether it was the slavery of the southern church, um, whether it was the crusades that were when the church was co-opted by kings and governments, even if they're not carried out by believers, by people who call themselves Christians, we need to repent of those things. And that is hard today when we repent, need to repent of current sins, when we are caught in political and cultural eddies where each side won't budge an inch and hyperventilates at the slightest perceived weakness of the other side. That's what we have right now. And yet, 1 Peter 4 says judgment's coming. But it's actually going to come first to the house of God. Uh, certainly not final judgment. Christ has taken that. But, but we still need to come before the Lord and, and bear our sins. We still need to be purified and cleansed. And there is a way that we as a church can actually show the gospel more powerfully if we're honest about our sins. For some reason, we feel the need to hide them as well. The obvious case today is instances of sexual abuse. I don't know if you can say the church is any worse than any other organization. It seems to be endemic in our culture. But are we much better? That's a question we don't know because we haven't answered it and we have hidden it in many ways. And when we as a church are shown areas where there are sexual wrongs and there are perpetrators, we need to be honest that we are a flawed people. We need God's grace just like everyone else. It's a hard topic. We want to both honor the person who has been hurt and also not unjustly malign someone. But we cannot simply sweep it under the rug as churches have done many times over the past century. If we can say, you know, you're bringing this area an accusation against us. And at least to a point, you're right. If we can say that 
to our opponents. We can say, yes, the church is full of sinners. And that's why we have such a wonderful Savior. Then, then, when we have those moments of confrontation with our friends, and maybe it is disruptive, and maybe it does demolish idols, well, maybe they'll say, this person, though, is more than just a talking head. They really have changed. Tell me about this Jesus. And this, too, we can look to the cross. Instead of getting that YouTube moment, we can repent, we can serve, we can model humility, love, and genuine interest. At the end of the day, we serve a different king. You cannot be silent. There is a time to speak. There is a time to confront. There might even be a time, metaphorically speaking, to cut down trees. But only as we are focused on Jesus' honor through the way of the cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is freeing when we can go into battle as flawed humans who have been made new by your grace. We can be so confident as we speak because we know that your love and acceptance for us has nothing to do, does not hinge at all on the way that we perform. You've done that. And so, Lord, would you make us a praying people, praying for your spirit to break up hard ground in the lives of those around us. Would you make us a faithful and friendly people who care for people enough to get to know them and to love them and want to see God in their lives and not just see them as clickbait for a put-down. And would you show us our own lives and hearts in the areas, too, where we need to be cleansed and purified. In all of this, would Jesus, our wonderful suffering servant who was coming back as reigning king, be glorified and give the honor. Amen.